Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero, on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, a treatment update on renal cell cancer or kidney cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I specifically want to call out um, two kidney cancer organizations, the Kidney um, Cancer Association and Kidney Cancer Canada. They've really helped to promote the program enormously, um, and it's because of all of the collaboration on this program and, of course, um, your interest in the program. We have over 450 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Singapore, Taiwan, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us, and you are clearly a group of information seekers. And I know that some of you are listening on the phone uh, on your own. Some of you are listening in a group. Some of you are listening with family members in different parts of the country. So one person is one part of the country and one is in another or another country altogether. And so, and then you have a chance to kind of talk about the program afterwards. So it's really very exciting for us to, to, to think of how you all use these programs. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, ISI Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today and for their collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Amishi Shah, Dr. Shah's assistant professor, genital urinary medical oncology, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Shah is going to address an overview of renal cell cancer, current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shah. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. Uh, this is, like Dr. Mesner said, this is Dr. Shaw. Um, I work at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and I really thank you for this opportunity today to speak to you all. Um, so in terms of kidney cancer, there are several different subtypes of kidney cancer. And so one of the terms you may hear your health providers use uh, refer to actually the way these tumor cells look under the microscope. And so the most common subtype of kidney cancer is actually what we call clear cell carcinoma, and that makes up about 75 to 80% of kidney cancer types. The more rare subtypes of kidney cancer include papillary cancer, chromophobe, renal medullary, collecting duct, and many other very rare subtypes of kidney cancer. So the majority of data that we discuss today will be relevant to the clear cell kidney cancer population. However, a lot of data from the clear cell population is sort of abstracted and used in some of the more rare subtypes of kidney cancer. Um, for most patients in this country um, and, and around the world, the biggest risk factor for kidney cancer is smoking-related. However, there are some familial inherited syndromes that can be relevant in some kidney cancer subtypes. Um, and so particularly if patients are presenting at a very young age of diagnosis or have a strong family history, um, something to think about is if there's any kind of genetic predisposition. 
In terms of the standard treatment approaches for kidney cancer, um, we really sort of break things up into whether it's limited to the kidney or whether it has metastasized or spread outside the kidney to other organs. And so for the, for the sake of discussion, we sort of lump um, limited stage kidney cancer, which includes, includes stages one, two, and three. Um, again, this is kidney cancer that has not spread outside the kidney to anywhere else. Um, so with stages one, two, and three, the current standard of care is surgical resection. So a urologist goes in and performs what we call a cytoreductive nephrectomy. Um, and currently, that is the standard of care for, for limited-stage kidney cancer. Now, there are many clinical trials that have looked at the role of um, therapies before and after surgery with um, targeted therapies or immunotherapies. And some of the data is a little bit controversial, but for most patients, the standard of care is currently after surgery to just observe and watch. There's different ways to risk stratify, and your provider may offer you a clinical trial looking at an adjuvant or after-surgery therapy for limited-stage tumor, but currently most patients go on to surveillance after their surgery um, with routine interval CAT scans. Stage 4 disease, or where kidney cancer has spread outside the kidney to other areas of the body, um, is treated primarily with what we call systemic therapies. These are therapies that are taken either by mouth or by IV and basically go all over the body. So not only are they hitting the kidney cancer itself, but they're hitting any sites of metastases and any microscopic disease that may exist. I'm actually going to discuss the standard of care sort of in broad categories of treatment type. So the most commonly utilized treatment type in metastatic kidney cancer are what we call targeted therapies, or TKIs. The idea behind most of these therapies is that they work to cut off blood supply to the tumor. So just like our cells need nutrients and oxygen to grow, so do tumor cells. And tumor cells secrete all types of chemicals and, and inflammatory molecules to try and grow blood vessels to themselves, and this sort of helps to reverse that process. Some of the common TKs that are used that you may have seen or heard the names of are votrient or pizopinib, sutent or sunitinib, cabometix or cabozantinib. Um, there are others including linvatinib, exitinib, serafinib, so there are multiple TKIs out there. Um, the other, the next broad category of treatments for metastatic kidney cancer are immunotherapies or immune checkpoint inhibitors. And the idea behind immunotherapies is that they work to ramp up your own immune system against the tumor cells. So your immune system, for example, if you have an infection or a cough or a cold, your immune system recognizes that bug as something foreign that shouldn't be there. And it ramps up a response to counteract that and fight that infection to clear it from your body. Likewise, your immune system can recognize tumor, antigens, or proteins as foreign bodies and activate a response, but your immune system also has a lot of natural checkpoints to shut down so as to avoid damage to normal self-tissue. Um, so you may have heard of, for example, autoimmune conditions like lupus or motor arthritis, that's when the immune system is overactive. And so your body has natural checkpoints to avoid that type of overactivity. What these immunotherapies do is allow the immune system to continue to activate against the tumor cell, in essence, lifting the brakes off the immune system so that your immune system can better identify the tumor cells and destroy them. Uh, another broad category of treatment 
is are what we call mTOR inhibitors, Everlimus or Tempsirolimus. These have been utilized a little less frequently with the advent of newer TKIs and immunotherapies, but they still have a role for select patients depending on the line of therapy. And um, so, you know, the current standard of care in metastatic kidney cancer is really one until recently of what we call monotherapy, meaning for most patients, they were treated upfront with a TKI. Um, if a time came that things were progressing or a patient was not tolerating therapy, they may be switched to a different TKI or an immunotherapy. Um, the most commonly utilized immunotherapy is nivolumab or Optivo um, versus a different agent or clinical trial. And typically, the current standard of care has been choosing one agent and then choosing another single agent at the time of progression. However, there have been multiple recent clinical trials that have um, recently resulted, uh, reported their results that have been very exciting, and likely the standard of kidney, uh, care in kidney cancer will be changing in the coming months. And so I would like to put that on your radar um, because it may affect the, the options that your provider is offering you. Um, so one one study that recently reported out was the Chucknate 214 study, and this study looked at patients with previously untreated kidney cancer, and it took um, a combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab, which are both immunotherapies, and compared it to sunitinib or sutan, which is a TKI. And nivolumab and ipilimumab were found to be superior to sunitinib in terms of survival um, and in terms of response rates. And so it is thought by many that this will be a new standard of care um, in the United States in the coming months. Currently, that data is being reviewed by the FDA, so it is not yet standard of care, but that change is likely shortcoming. Um, another trial that was recently reported was called the Emotion 151 trial, and this compared the combination of bevacizumab, which is a TKI, and atezolizumab, which is an immunotherapy, compared to Sutent, which is a TKI. And again, the bevacizumab atezo arm was superior to the Sutent in terms of response rates and progression-free survival. Um, and so again, this is being reviewed by the FDA, but may be offered in the near future to patients that have not previously been treated for their kidney cancer as a frontline therapy. And so um, all of this to say, not that one needs to remember the very specific details of numbers or anything like that, but all of this is to say that the, the field of kidney cancer is changing very rapidly, and currently the landscape is, is shifting dramatically in terms of how we're viewing combinations of therapies and newer agents. Um, bridging sort of to newer treatment options, Dr. Zarita will be covering the context of clinical trials um, as, as a treatment option. Um, there are several new interesting drugs coming down the pipeline. Um, many of them are immune modulatory in some way, meaning they affect the immune system in some way. So you may hear something about IDO inhibitors. Um, the other area of excitement is, again, combination therapy. And so combinations of two different immunotherapies, combinations of TKIs and immunotherapies. And so this is really um, sort of an exploding area right now in kidney cancer. Finally, um, I'd like to address quality of life concerns um, and communicating with your healthcare team about them. So one fundamental principle we utilize in cancer care is to discuss the intent of the treatment that we're offering. 
Um, and this is a very essential concept. And so your provider may say we're treating with curative intent versus with palliative intent. And what that means to say is that curative intent means that any treatment we're offering you, be it therapy, surgery, radiation, whatever it is, um, is being offered with the hopes to make this go away and to never come back to cure you of your cancer. If your provider suggests that this is with palliative intent, what that means is that we do not have a therapy to completely cure this cancer. We don't have something to make it go away completely, but we're hoping that the treatments will help to alleviate side effects, to help keep you feeling well, and to prolong your life. So when we think about intensive treatment, that's very important because we have different thresholds for side effects on those two. For example, if a patient is being treated with curative intent, they're likely only to receive therapy for a limited period of time. And so side effects, you know, it's a very short period of time to deal with any potential side effects. The reverse of that is that with palliative intent of therapy, this is a therapy that we're hoping will actually make you feel better. So if something is making you feel miserable, that means there's a disconnect in what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and so it's really important to address your side effects at all of your visits with your provider so that they can help you troubleshoot it. Um, and again, I know Dr. Zarita is um, going to go over some of the side effects of these medicines, but for example, if you're having diarrhea or a rash or um, you know, blood pressure issues on some of these TKI therapies or immunotherapies, it's really important to come in with a list of questions and, and issues that you're having so that your provider can help you. Um, these, these medications have all been used for several years, and so we have good ways of managing side effects if you're having them. Um, and then finally, it's really important to um, discuss, you know, or think about it for yourself and discuss with your family about sort of your long-term goals of care. Um, we advise all of our patients, whether they're localized or metastatic, to have a sense of what their wishes are in the case of an emergency. Um, we advise everyone to have advanced directives, medical power of attorney, living wills, all those things that are not fun to think about but are really important to help guide your family as to your wishes in case of an emergency. And so these are all things that your provider team can also be um, helpful with in terms of discussing these options. Um, so. Long, long way of saying, basically, communication of all these different different issues is critical because your team can help support you through those difficult um, topics. Um, thanks, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shah. That was very informative, really excellent, really outstanding, and a wonderful way to start the program off. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So remember, everybody, there are questions during the Q there will be a question period during the next part of the program, and so be sure to prepare your questions. So we'll be sure to have them. So our next speaker is Dr. Mato Zarita. Dr. Zarita is associate professor of medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Department of Genital Urinary Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine. And Dr. Zarita is going to uh, address the role of precision medicine, targeted cancer therapies, clinical trials, and managing side effects and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Zarita. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, and thank you, everybody uh, listening. Thank you very much for the opportunity to address uh, so many people in these very important topics um, and Hopefully, I will try to make this informative, and uh, people later will, will show their interest uh, with, with relevant questions to what I say. So basically, when we are trying to select a treatment in, uh, in kidney cancer, in particularly the, the part that we treat the most is the metastatic disease, 
We are basically trying to consider, uh, you know, multiple different factors. Obviously, probably the most important one is how efficacious the treatment is. But we have to try to balance this with, you know, other very important components in this disease, which are, you know, what are the characteristics of the disease of the patient and of the patient himself. So for us, it's really important to know how sick the patient is or how functional or how strong age is very important, and the presence of other uh, medical problems also affects significantly our ability to give treatment. And then other disease-related factors, such as, uh, for example, the amount of disease the patient has, whether there are multiple organs involved or just uh, a few, whether uh, the involvement of the organs is uh, multiple or is single, whether it's uh, you know, inducing any particular problem to the function of that particular uh, organ. And then it has to do also with patient preference. I'm going to be talking about um, side effects. The side effects from the medications that we use for the treatment of advanced kidney cancer are substantial in some patients. And so uh, it's definitely something really important uh, to consider um, the patient's preference. Because, you know, for some patients, living longer doesn't necessarily equate with living better. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to also make uh, sure that you have an adequate discussion with the patient about um, the profile of side effects to expect, how they may affect um, the patient's well-being and uh, the other medical problems the patient may have, and listen to the patient's preference. And it's also very important uh, to consider the experience of the oncologist. As uh, Dr. Shah was saying a moment ago, there are multiple new treatments being developed uh, for this disease, and the field is changing sometimes so quickly uh, that, um, you know, really everything takes a learning curve um, when you have a completely new type of medication being applied uh, for treatment, even though you may know the, the theory, oftentimes it requires um, a learning curve, it requires exposure to side effects uh, to be able to detect things uh, more timely and to be able to treat and the side effects more effectively. So in general, when we talk about untargeted therapies in kidney cancer, we have been talking uh, for the past 10 years or so about therapies that affect uh, the ability to bring in uh, blood supply to nourish the tumor. One of the things that characterizes the most frequent type of kidney cancer, uh, the clear cell type, the conventional type, as Dr. Shah said, it makes approximately 70% of the cases, is that there is some alteration uh, that basically triggers a response in the surrounding area of the tumor to bring in that blood supply. And so the medications that were initially developed and proved to be um, more effective, leading to uh, their approval and current use, were those that, again, affect the ability of the tumor to bring in blood supply. The problem is that by affecting the blood supply, you are not affecting only the blood supply to the tumor. You may be affecting also blood vessels in normal organs, and many of the side effects are a consequence of uh, that effect or those effects. A second kind of medication, as Dr. Shah mentioned, uh, is that of mTOR inhibitors. Um, this kind of medication is um, also molecularly targeted to uh, try to affect some tumor signals that um, basically help the tumor proliferate and stay alive. Um, you know, this may also work by affecting how the tumor communicates with the supporting cells in the microenvironment of the tumor. It's not very well known how, how they work, but they also have side effects that are particularly related to the patient's metabolism. And then finally, there is a third category of uh, medications that are now approved for the treatment of advanced kidney cancer, which are immunomodulatory. So as Dr. Shah mentioned earlier, 
these medications um, um, have been developed uh, with the goal of trying to unleash the ability of immune system to recognize the abnormality that uh, cancer represents, and so trying to enhance the ability of the immune system to recognize the cancer and fight it. And so many of the, um, of the medications um, that uh, we are currently using and we are going to be using next on um, do have uh, potential for multiple side effects that are associated to this, uh, in some cases, excessive activation of the immune system against uh, the normal being. So in order to determine the treatment, as I said, we consider multiple different factors uh, and we basically classify the patients into, um, again, whether they have a disease that is more or less risky, and we try to align the treatments uh, to that risk. So nowadays, the tendency is to use more of the blood vessel modifying medic medications um, in frontline in patients with a disease that is um, of the less aggressive flavor, and then we try to use more of the immunotherapies or somewhat stronger or more um, broad in the profile of activity of the medications targeting uh, the blood vessels for the patients that are uh, more sick. And the clinical trials are suggesting that there may be substantial differences in those broad patient sets. So uh, again, it may be that some of the stronger uh, medications affecting the blood vessels may still work well, but may prove more toxic, and that toxicity may not be necessary uh, for the less uh, sick patients, and it may not work that well uh, for the patients um, being treated with immunotherapy. So the immunotherapies may not work that well uh, for the patients with a less risky disease. However, uh, some of the uh, combinations of immunotherapies or the stronger um, medications affecting the blood vessels uh, may be more appropriate and more effective, again, for the patients with a disease that is more aggressive. So some of the toxicities that um, these medications, the ones that affect the blood vessels and the ones that affect the mTOR signaling pathway, um, you know, tend to be pretty consistent and um, in most patients consist on fatigue, rashes, so, you know, skin reactions, hand-foot syndrome, uh, where patients develop um, a swelling and a tingling, uh, usually in the hands or feet, and, um, you know, sometimes they develop blisters or disquamation. Um, because of the alteration of the blood vessels, oftentimes this results in elevation in blood pressure and um, not uncommonly diarrhea, a feeling of swelling or tenderness in the mouth, and oftentimes also a change in voice or a change in uh, the sense of taste. They may also, some of them, affect uh, the blood counts. Uh, again, they may make worse uh, some of the uh, uh, you know, patients uh, already uh, ongoing metabolic problems, like, uh, for example, diabetes. And uh, some of them, again, because of the uh, way they affect the blood vessels, may result in alterations in endocrine organs like the thyroid or in the kidney, resulting in abnormal leakage of protein through the kidney or even some, some bleeding in some patients. Then there are rare side effects uh, that are, are related to um, effects on particularly the cardiovascular system. So um, it's fortunately rare, but it happens that um, uh, these medications can result in decreased ability of the heart to pump out blood. It can result in strokes or heart attacks. It can result in severe bleeding coming from the gastrointestinal tract, sometimes in infections, blood clots, sometimes in you know, inflammation in the lungs. So again, a, a you know, significant number of potential side effects, which um, you know, in different clinical trials um, have been found to lead to early treatment discontinuation in up to, you know, 25% of the patients, and that's very substantial because 
what happens is if these medications work, really what is absolutely critical is to make them compatible with the patient's lifestyle and the patient's, um, you know, comorbid background, meaning it's very important once you have established that a medication has potential to be helping a patient to find a way for the patient to be able to tolerate it in the long term. Because if you cannot tolerate the medication in the long term, you are not going to be able to obtain any benefit. So um, regarding the immunotherapies, uh, I was mentioned before that um, these medications have their own set of uh, side effects different usually to what we see with uh, the blood vessel affecting or the mTOR inhibitor medications. And um, the, the issue with this is that it can affect really almost any organ in the body. So it can affect the, also the skin, and resulting in um, bad rashes, typically a little bit different than the ones that uh, we see with the other medications. And then it can result in significant colitis, diarrhea, um, you know, it can alter the lungs and, and really be serious in some patients. It can affect multiple endocrine organs, thyroid, adrenal, pituitary. It can result in uh, alterations in the nervous system, uh, in the hematologic uh, counts. In some patients, uh, it can be leading to very significant drops in their blood counts and uh, also even in the eyes. And so, again, these medications really require that one is very much on top of uh, what's going on with the patient to be uh, able to identify these side effects very quickly so to prevent uh, any of the very serious toxicities that can occur as a consequence of insisting on giving the medication if the patient is starting to give signs of important uh, side effects. What happens also is that uh, for the management of those side effects, uh, we usually need very serious medications such as steroids, sometimes in high doses, sometimes we need other medications that can also result in serious side effects. So again, it's absolutely critical to be very much on top of um, the development of these side effects and uh, stop or um, be very cautious in the application of um, these treatments, trying to prevent uh, the, the occurrence of, of serious problems. Regarding um, the uh, now more effective application of the medications, that's, and that's really the role of, um, of what we were talking um, about in the uh, precision medicine. So um, precision medicine is essentially trying to apply the knowledge from the uh, characterization of the disease in uh, multiple patients into trying to find common ways for the cancer to progress and trying to then derive treatments that affect those particular ways of progressing in the tumors. And so in kidney cancer, which is a disease that um, really is very different from many other uh, types of cancer in that, uh, for example, um, you know, over the years it's been uh, very clear that chemotherapy, the way that, is, that it was given in, in cancer in general, doesn't work very well in kidney cancer. And, um, you know, similar to some types of skin cancer, for example, kidney cancer is one that appears to be um, particularly sensitive to modulation of the cells um, that, again, either nourish the tumor or um, modulate the, the recognition of the tumor of something, as something abnormal. And so, uh, again, precision medicine is trying to align a treatment with the specific characteristics of the tumor a patient has. So um, clinical trials are being absolutely critical into gaining that knowledge. Why? Because with this increasing knowledge coming from the characterization of multiple tumors from multiple patients, obviously this is all related to technological developments and the decrease in the price um, of, of many of the uh, different technologies that are needed to, again, uh, clarify that characterization of the tumors. 
the point here is to try to avoid side effects because if we know that a treatment X is not going to work in a specific patient's tumor, we really don't want to give it. And so if we can avoid giving an effective therapy for a patient, obviously we are not going to be giving um, a lot of side effects that would be completely unnecessary, and we would also be avoiding using a very usually very expensive medication that will not help uh, a patient. Uh, but obviously what we want to also see is whether the patient's tumor has a specific characteristic that then would help us determine the best treatment option for that particular tumor and that particular patient. So, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical that um, this knowledge is then incorporated into the clinical trials so these notions can be tested in a way where we can demonstrate a relationship between the alteration and between the benefit uh, in the patient. So, as Dr. Shah was mentioning earlier, there are multiple uh, new um, venues of treatment um, for kidney cancer that are related um, to um, this knowledge. And so combinations, for example, between different ways of modulating the immune system are being developed. Uh, Dr. Shah mentioned IDO as one of them. So there are ways to affect the metabolism of the tumor that can potentially enhance the effectiveness of some of the medications that we already know are working. So there are also ways to synergize between the two different uh, big types of medications, the ones that affect the blood vessels and the ones that affect the immune system. So we uh, are under the impression, based on the early results of multiple clinical trials, that these combinations actually result in very high uh, numbers of responses. And some of these responses can be much more durable, again, sometimes at the cost of side effects. But um, you know, for some patients, particularly those that um, are more sick, um, it may be much more useful to use these medications in combination so to achieve the responses that then we would be able to build on down the line. And, um, and then there are other uh, possibilities related to uh, the increased knowledge uh, from um, the biology of the disease into ways to enhance the um, ability to cut down that nourishment of the tumor that I was mentioning um, before. So again, aligning um, the knowledge coming from um, the lab and um, uh, the testing of um, these different combinations of medications with the specific characteristics of the tumor is what these clinical trials that uh, are being now developed are testing in a prospective manner. The idea is that you know, the knowledge coming from phase one clinical trials where we're trying to um, basically um, say whether we are modulating what we want to modulate in a specific tumor or we are defining toxicities Phase two clinical trials where we are trying to uh, define how well treatments uh, work in an early manner um, and uh, define better combinations. And phase three clinical trials, so depending on the stage of the clinical trial uh, we are at, uh, we would be able to then um, get to the point where we can apply some of this knowledge um, to um, a specific patient. So I'm going to give an example um, in. Um, um, in phase three clinical trials with immunotherapy, there is this marker PDR1 that is being uh, looked that is suggesting uh, to enrich for the ability of some of these diseases to respond to the therapy. So, if you do have a disease that is more, more aggressive and you do have um, this expression of this marker, then you can potentially derive a greater benefit uh, from these medications. But there is a still way to go because um, some um, of the patients that don't have this alteration still respond to the therapy and not all the patients that do have this alteration respond to the therapy. But again, it's a way to try to improve the quality of, uh, of the treatments and the application of the treatments. 
I think I was supposed to be also talking about uh, the management of pain. Obviously, pain is um, a critical thing uh, to take control of in the quality of life of the cancer patients. Obviously, there are multiple ways to uh, treat pain. This is usually multidisciplinary, so different teams need to be involved. Um, the pain also has psychological consequences of the patient, so this goes from the physical to uh, the medication to the psychological and um, there are multiple medications. Uh, usually the ones that are used the most are opioids or morphine derivatives. But then in kidney cancer, oftentimes, probably more than in other types of tumor, we see um, uh, a, a, an increased use of uh, focal therapies, particularly for patients who have uh, bone metastasis, which tend to be particularly difficult to treat in kidney cancer. So oftentimes we need to do focal therapies trying to kill specific areas of tumor and that's resulting in a lot of impairment and pain and sometimes even in fractures of the bones. So anyway, that was um, a little bit a summary of, of you know, the topics uh, that um, I was um, asked to, to cover and I would be delighted later to respond whatever specific questions the, the audience has. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sarita. That was really outstanding and very comprehensive and, and lots of information. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and they're already coming in, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston. And um, Ms. Um, Bearden is going to address nutritional concerns and tips that I know are of great concern to everyone on the call. So I'm going to turn this program over to Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing the nutritional concerns in the presence of renal cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance to the treatment and provide you energy to do the things you enjoy. A plant-based diet is the most ideal um, through all stages of cancer prevention, during treatment, and in survivorship. This translates into having about two-thirds of your plate plant-based, and plant-based foods are things like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Plant-based foods provide us antioxidants and phytochemicals that can help reduce inflammation and also protect our cells and um, help our body work in, work in an optimal fashion. The other third of your plate, um, it's recommended to be a lean protein. Some examples of a lean protein are things like wild-caught fish, poultry, and even using beans, plant-based um, proteins occasionally. Protein is very important. It's the building block for healing. So if you're undergoing a procedure, a surgery, or you're preparing for one, um, it may be important for you to be mindful of the amount of protein that will be um, necessary for you during that time. When we look at our plant-based foods, um, some things to clarify, and it can often be very confusing. There's a lot of labeling in the supermarkets and advertisement. But fresh or frozen are actually the best forms of plant-based foods um, to incorporate into your diet. Frozen's convenient. It's pre-washed, cut, ready to go. Um, fresh is also great. Um, it's just sometimes um, access to that can be um, challenging for patients, especially when you have a full schedule. Um, 
During your treatment, there may be a need for you to take supplements due to your, your unique circumstances. But talk with your healthcare team about this before initiating anything on your own. Um, there may be some interactions with um, the, the substances that you're not aware of, and it may seem very benign, but it could be pretty significant um, with the treatment that you're receiving. Also, there may be times during your treatment that your diet may need to be modified and in response to your unique needs. Everybody is a unique patient. Everybody's needs look different. And so that's part of um, having a patient-centered care and working with your interdisciplinary team. There's a lot of support within your team. A dietitian is one of those um, support um, that you can reach out to. So I encourage all of you to maintain constant communication with your healthcare team related to any challenges you're facing. The sooner, the better. Um, the idea is to help address anything before it becomes problematic. Now, hydration is very important and oftentimes can be overlooked. But dehydration can actually increase nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy and, and not well, give you a headache. Fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature. This is things like water, juice, sports drinks. A general guideline is that most people need between 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. This also may change based on your unique needs. So walk, working with your healthcare team, asking for a consult with your dietitian, um, she can help you in outlining what your calorie and fluid needs are and your protein needs. Again, this may change throughout your treatment, so that constant communication can help you um, understand how you can um, be independent in, in directing um, the care outside of the hospital and what you're eating and how that can help you with healing and things like that. Thank you for allowing me to be t a part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was wonderful, and I know the questions for you as well during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she is our uh, clinical uh, uh, supervisor here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly is going to be addressing the, uh, um, the uh, Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs at Cancer Care, as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'd like to thank everyone on the call. I think we got a lot of good information today. So we've been talking uh, really about managing your care and your quality of life, and so I'd like to begin um, by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of that network. So a little about us. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling, which we provide face-to-face -face in the New York area, and then over the phone nationally. Uh, support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in the New York area, over the phone nationally, and also online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs, like the one that we're on today. We also provide practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, and provide some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and they're completely free of charge. 
an oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so the support network. We're trained uh, also to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, so financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and overall psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. As you know, cancer affects the whole person, uh, every aspect of their life, and also their support network, asking for help by joining a support group, uh, maybe contacting a social worker for counseling can be incredibly helpful. You know, I think the thing with it uh, to remember is that it's a strength uh, to reach out and ask for help and also to know that you don't have to do this alone. If you join a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems or issues with individual counseling. You really have a space that's just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections help. They help lessen the isolation that many people experiencing cancer may face, and they also help you feel better emotionally and can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, we offer a number of online support groups, phone support groups, face-to-face support groups, as well as the counseling services um, that I had mentioned earlier. If you're interested in learning more about any of our services, call us. Um, You can reach us on our Hope line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. I also would encourage you to visit our website. We have a very comprehensive website, and you'll find a lot of information not only on support, but on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis, treatment, and just ways of coping as you go through this. And that website address is www.cancercare.org. You know, as I said, at the beginning of my talk, you know, we've got a lot of good information um, from today's program, but it's also a lot of information to digest and kind of get your arms around. Know that our social workers are here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And if you have any questions about our services, you know, don't hesitate to contact us. Lastly, I just want to stress again um, that you're not alone in this and you don't have to walk the path alone. Our services are here to help. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thanks so much, Ms. Kelly. That was wonderful and uh, such excellent points. Lots of information and our staff are here to talk with you further if you need further help with us. So now we do have time for questions. I really want to thank our speakers for really making that possible. And I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and then I'm going to ask her to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Some of you already know how to do that, so you've been queuing up, but some of you don't, so I'm going to be sure we have, everyone has a chance to ask a question. So, um, uh, Crystal, if you would explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. 
Uh, thank you so much, Caroline. It's the usual and excellent seminar. Um, I have quest- two questions for Dr. Zarita. I am a registered nurse and licensed social worker myself, a breast cancer survivor, and I know other people that have renal cell cancer. I want to know about the side effects of the peripheral neuropathy that you're working with, people that ha- I myself have it, and I know other people that have it with the hands and feet. Uh, I'd like to know about if you think about clinical trials or what you're doing if you're working with alpha-lipoic acid and vitamin B6 and B12 and what um, you can do with that instead of taking like Neurontin Zerica, which I know other people are taking, but also uh, what about vitamin D and what's the optimal level for D for prophecy for reoccurrence and prevention and uh, magnesium, of course, calcium and fish oil. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, so, Stephanie, and um, Dr. Teresa, if you could address the question in a general way. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm certainly not an expert into the management of, of peripheral neuropathy in terms of the most current knowledge on, on clinical trials and, and new ways to approach this. But certainly all the options that you were mentioning may have a role uh, with more or less evidence behind it, particularly for patients who may have deficiencies uh, for some of those elements that you were mentioning. And so, you know, in the typical assessment of a patient's development of neuropathy, we typically assess for deficiencies in some of those elements, and we try to replete those that may be missing. Um, There is data to suggest that the use of some vitamin B derivatives indeed may uh, decrease the severeness of uh, the neuropathy. You probably were also referring to my comments on the hand-foot syndrome, uh, which is a little bit different. Um, It's not that much of a uh, neuropathic problem. It's uh, sometimes more of a skin and, um, you know, soft tissue reaction to some of the medications that are used in kidney cancer, and it may be related to the use of this um, blood vessel modulation that I was talking about, um, a consequence of that blood vessel modulation. And so um, typically what what is used for this is, um, you know, usually preventing, so usually uh, taking a lot of emollients, uh, a lot of uh, very hydrating lotions and preventing trauma, that is a very critical thing. So uh, trying to cushion uh, the uh, extremities, the feet and the hand, uh, try to use gloves and uh, cotton gloves particularly, uh, stay well hydrated and avoid a trauma that uh, typically results in a much more efficient management of the problem than having to take care of the consequences when the, the, once the problem has manifested. Excellent. Thank you. Anyone want to Dr. Um, Shah, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. As Dr. Zuder mentioned, um, you know, we see a little less of peripheral neuropathy in kidney cancer patients because we're not using traditional cytotoxic chemotherapies like are used for breast cancer or other tumor types. Um, so gratefully, it's a little bit less of an issue than the hand foot, which is typically a little bit easier to deal with in terms of using moisturizers and stuff. Um, For peripheral neuropathy specifically, we do often get our neurologists involved, um, and there are clinical trials that are going on typically through the neurology department rather than through um, some of the traditional more medical oncology practices. Um, Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Shaw. Um, do they allow you in a clinical trial with another type of cancer, for example, lymphoma? Uh, typically not. Most clinical trials have an exclusion of a patient with active malignancy. Um, now, there are several stipulations on that. Typically, there will be a time limit. So, for example, if you've been free of lymphoma for five years, 
then you are typically allowed on clinical trial. But if it's within the last couple of years, then no, typically patients are excluded because it muddies the picture a bit. Um, there are some uh, clinical trials that exclude simple, straightforward things like, you know, a very superficial skin cancer like a squamous or basal skin cancer that's been resected. That will not keep you off a clinical trial. But anything like uh, a lymphoma or something that requires therapy uh, does preclude clinical trial. Excellent. And, and Dr. Um, Zarita, do you want to add anything to that as well? Not really. I think Dr. Shah uh, covered it very well. As she mentioned, um, you know, the the use of specific cancer therapies may be disparate, um, may result in disparate uh, results in different kinds of cancer. So, you know, the drivers for some cancers uh, are very different to the drivers to some others, and so uh, you may be actually altering um, the way uh, one of the cancers responds and, and not doing the same with the other one. And it's very difficult if one of the cancers, the one that you are not intending to treat in the clinical trial, is progressing in the background that really can affect significantly your ability to determine um, how well the treatment that you are giving for, cancer, for the first of the cancers is, is working. And so usually, as she mentioned, uh, patients with uh, two coexistent malignancies that are active are not considered for participation in clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have um, another question um, um, for Dr. Um, for actually both, I'll start with Dr. Zarita and then Dr. Shock. I want to address it. But um, um, for stage one, two, and three clear cell renal, renal cancer patients, is there a role for x-rays during the observe and watch period? The observed and watched period, meaning the surveillance after the treatment has been given? Yes, watching, I think it means, so for, yes, during the observed and watched period, so it would be surveillance, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So depending on the risk of the tumor, um, the frequency and the kind of studies that are typically used are um, uh, done with, again, more or less uh, frequency and they are more or less thorough. But in general, it goes from, you know, looking at x-rays and CT scans every three months uh, to, for the cases where one expects the probability of recurrence being uh, higher or more significant as uh, for patients who have a low risk sometimes with an image in sometimes up to a year. So, again, it all depends on the risk of the initial, of the initial disease. But, yes, there is a, a role for uh, subsequent imaging evaluation in the monitoring of the patients after the initial treatment. And um, Dr. Um, Shah, do you wish to add anything? Uh, yeah, no, Dr. Zarita covered it. Um, basically, you know, the first two years after a tumor is resected are the highest risk of recurrence. Um, and so we typically are more um, prone to get CAT scans and x-rays uh, at, at usually every three-month intervals for those first couple of years. Um, now, if you're a very low risk, you know, if it was a tiny little stage one tumor, um, that risk is much lower than somebody with a large invasive type stage three tumor, and so some of this is definitely patient-specific. Um, after the two-year mark, things get spaced out even more since the risk decreases, and after the five-year mark, it may be spaced out even further. And so um, definitely as time goes on, the risk of recurrence decreases. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone question. And we have no questions from the phone line. Okay, thank you. Then we have another online question. Um, and so this question would be for 
Dr. Servita, um, this is a, um, a, a kind of difficult question, I think. What percent of patients diagnosed with renal cell cancer have surgery and have no metastasis? I don't know if there's a... Um, so typically the the uh, number of patients presenting with no metastasis is in the range of 60 to 70%, 60-65% or so. So, you know, usually approximately two-thirds of patients present with no metastasis and, and one-third of them either present with metastasis or recur uh, with uh, metastasis or where the tumor was before. And Dr. Shah, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, so, you know, one of the other areas we always talk about with surgery is sort of what the role is of nephrectomy, of kidney surgery, in the metastatic setting. And this is sort of an area of controversy and um, an area where there's a lot of interest. Um, so traditionally, for most solid tumor malignancies, when a patient has distant metastases, for example, say a female with breast cancer that has metastases to the lungs, typically the primary area is not surgically removed. Um, for example, that female would likely not have a mastectomy if she had metastases to the lung. Um, of course, there are you know, exceptions to that rule, but for kidney cancer, there was some previous data suggesting that even in, the, even in the presence of metastases, there is some benefit to removing the kidney. Um, some of that data uh, is, is old, and it's previous from the era of these newer TKIs and immunotherapies. So how that nephrectomy plays now is sort of a, a controversial discussion. There's some suggestion that removing the kidney does help with immune-mediated type, um, you know, immune-modulatory type events where your immune system might better be able to fight metastatic sites if those tumor antigens are uh, sort of um, presented at the time of surgery. That being said, it's sort of a multidisciplinary discussion where if a patient has a lot of metastases, a high burden of disease, it's likely not safe to send them into a surgery because you're creating a large abdominal incision. You're, you know, putting them in the hospital to recover from this big wound. Um, and meantime, all the other areas of tumor could be growing and progressing without systemic therapy. However, if someone has a very limited low volume amount of disease, has a very good performance status, good organ function, then we often do offer surgery and nephrectomy to these patients even in metastatic disease. Excellent. Thank you. And we have um, another question, and this will be for Dr. Sarita. Um, so I want to stay active even though I'm undergoing treatment, but my energy levels are always low and I feel sluggish. What can I do to improve this? Well, um, yes. There are definitely uh, medication ways to try to improve uh, your energy, but before getting there, it's uh, very important to uh, follow a good diet. Um, so uh, trying to make sure that you're eating uh, good amounts of vegetables, uh, fruits, trying to eat healthy, uh, trying to minimize you know, uh, processed foods, and um, uh, again, trying to eat lean. Um, it's very important. Um, to stay very well hydrated, as I said, and um, then there are potentially uh, side effects from the medications that we were talking about that can be affecting your energy. And so, for example, one relatively frequent side effect from the blood vessel affecting or even the immune modulatory therapies uh, is on the endocrine organs. So, for example, the thyroid gland is one of them. 
And so it may be important for your provider to make sure that uh, you do not have any substantial alteration of those very important regulators of the way uh, you feel. And if there is any alteration in any of them, then treat that problem. Sometimes it's just a matter of a primary side effect from the medication without any other clear consequence coming from the alteration of an organ. And so sometimes there needs to be, depending on how severe your fatigue is, there needs to be some uh, adjustment in the schedule of the medication you're receiving or on the dose that you are receiving to make it more uh, manageable. And then again, as I mentioned, uh, there is this potential for use of medications to try to improve your um, strength and your awareness. But um, for as long as possible, is also, uh, although it can be very difficult, um, depending on how severe the fatigue is, but it's also very important to have this will and commitment into following a daily physical activity routine as much as your condition allows, uh, so not to uh, allow for any worsening of your condition down the line. So those would be the, the broad recommendations, I think. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Shah, do you wish to add anything to No. Okay. And we have um, this will be our final question here, um, and I'm going to um, I'll start with Dr. Shah and then Dr. Zarita, of course. Um, the question is: Please share your insights on utilizing Foundation One testing with advanced renal cell carcinoma. Please walk us through how the test results guide your decision in sequencing therapy from the first line and beyond. Thank you. And if you could address this in a general way, or if you're really talking about genomic. Um, testing, if you could just be specific about what that is. Sure. Um, that's, a, that's a really great question and definitely um, something that most, most patients are being offered um, at this time. So um, where foundation testing is really important is that it identifies particular molecular alterations or mutations that your tumor may harbor. Um, and so uh, the foundation testing does not necessarily change the standard of care treatment options that patients are offered but it can change what clinical trial options you're offered, um, as well as the sequence of therapy that may be offered. So for most of my patients that have metastatic tumors, be it kidney or bladder or whatever, um, as they start progressing past the standard of care therapies, this is something I'm offering them to send off their, their mutation testing to see what alterations are identified. Um, so for example, say a patient has received a TKI therapy and an immunotherapy and they're on their third line of therapy, likely have already sent it off so that those results can guide the next decision point if and when they progress. Um, say their tumor comes back with a specific mutation and there happens to be a drug that targets it. Well, that's a very biologically attractive option to say, well, they have this particular mutation, we have a drug that targets it, let's try and get some control with this particular um, agent. There's a couple caveats to be really careful with foundation testing. So one is that just because you're sending it off doesn't mean you'll definitely have a mutation. For some patients, there's not a mutation identified. Um, secondly, there may be a mutation identified, but we may not have a drug that targets it. Um, and that's also potentially, you know, a, a scenario. However, it's good information to be aware of because there's constantly new agents coming out and there may be the development of an agent that can target that down the line. Um, the third thing to be aware of is that a lot of 
say you have a mutation that's detected and there is a drug for it, most likely that drug is going to be offered in the context of a clinical trial. So that's something you have to be open and willing to do. Um, occasionally we are able to get these types of things off-label, but many times there are insurance holdups with that. So typically this is done in the context of a clinical trial. Um, it should not supplant or replace the standard treatments your, your provider is offering to you because it is still considered experimental, but it's a great adjunct and definitely something to keep in mind as later lines of therapy. Excellent. And Dr. Zrita, do you wish to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Dr. Shah has made an excellent uh, summary of, of, you know, our usual procedure with, with this knowledge. Unfortunately, though, for kidney cancer, and there are not many at this point actionable, um, you know, gene mutations uh, that we can use to drive therapy. Um, the knowledge is uh, very rapidly uh, accumulating, and I'm sure that in the next few years we are going to find ways to be able to act more based on the results of that kind of information. Um, but uh, I really think that at least as a, first, as a first glance, it can give us an idea of the complexity of the disease, how many alterations uh, the tumor of a patient has. And uh, that potentially can give us some information on how aggressively the treatment uh, needs to be, how uh, closely the patient needs to be followed, and the kind of therapy that may be more effective for the patient. So, you know, for kidney cancer, it's not as well shown as for other tumors, but, you know, tumors that have more alterations appear to be for probably more responsive to the immunotherapies, to the immune modulating therapies, because those alterations can be more likely recognized by the system. Um, and so, again, uh, patients who are enriched in those uh, can potentially benefit, um, even though, again, for the general kidney cancer patient, that has not been proven, but it's possible that for some patients that may be, may be useful. And then um, I think um, the, the real value of this will come for the serial application of, of these technologies. So there are ways now to try to identify the makeup of the tumor in the blood. And so why is that important? Well, it's important because it allows you to see how the tumor is changing over time. And so uh, hopefully uh, it will not be long before we can apply these technologies to the management of kidney cancer patients so we can be modifying or adjusting the therapies based on how the tumor is evolving over time as a consequence also of the effect of the therapies. Excellent. Thank you. And although I said that was the last question, there is one last question. Um, I'm going to include the call. But um, this question is an interesting question, important for everyone on the call. How is renal cell cancer most commonly discovered, loss of kidney function or incidental binding? So, Dr. Sharp, you could just address that. Uh, so most often kidney cancer is an incidental finding. For most of our patients, um, they are relatively asymptomatic, and most of these tumors are actually present for a number of years before they actually get to the point where they cause pain or bleeding in the urine or um, any type of symptom. So a lot of our patients have are getting imaging for something unrelated and it's it's picked up. Um, for other patients, when they present with symptoms, it's typically um, flank pain or abdominal pain, um, blood in the urine. Um, for some patients, it can be weight loss or change in um, energy and appetite, but that's less common. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been outstanding. I also want to thank all of you who have asked such really great questions. And I know that there are still questions, so I will address that. But I, I just want to say that this has been an extraordinary call, um, both in terms of the speakers and the participants on the call. So I want to thank you all. And I, I did say that I would help everyone who didn't get their questions answered to get them answered. So we're going to move on to that right now. Um, so I know that some of you are still having questions. And... <clears throat> 
we don't want anyone to leave the call feeling like there's nowhere to get your questions answered. So the first place we always recommend, of course, is your own healthcare team. Of course, they, of course, know you the best, and they are, of course, um, they know everything about you. So they're a good place to, to ask questions. And even for those people on the call who ask questions today, you can take your questions back to your healthcare team. Hopefully you had some information that you learned today that you can take back to your healthcare team. Now, in addition, we do often recommend that people call, but we have two kidney cancer organizations, first of all, that I know would be very helpful resources for all of you. There's kidney cancer Canada and the Kidney Cancer Association, I would actually recommend that you actually call both of them. And we're going to send you all that information in your evaluation packets when you, in the evaluations, we'll send you all like an evaluation form and we will send you all these resources with you. The other place we do recommend is the National Cancer Institute. Um, they actually are a wonderful resource both for clinical trial information, also to get questions answered um, that you, uh, just to help in informing your questions to your healthcare team. They're um, available at 1-800-422-6237. That's their phone number for information specialists. But they also have a live chat feature at www.cancer.gov, and you can pose your question on their website. So that's good for people in the U.S. and internationally as well. Um, and, and then they will help you to kind of get answers to your questions. They'll have their entire database to go through to get you that information. That is also true for Kidney Cancer Canada and Kidney Cancer Association as well. These are wonderful resources specifically, of course, to kidney cancer. Um, and uh, as we conclude the program, I don't want any one of you to feel alone. I think Ms. Kelly reviewed all the services you can access from cancer care, and we are simply a phone call away. And for those who need practical or financial assistance or wish to join a support group or get some counseling service or just talk with one of our oncology social workers, don't hesitate to call us or um, go to our website, email us, and that's true for people both in the U.S. and internationally as well. Many of our online support groups do have international participants, and we have over 120 online support groups, so there are lots of different groups on many different topics that might be of interest to you as well. And again, we do have another program coming up which might be of interest to you. It's, just, it's really on side effect management. It's really on preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. It will take place on Monday, April 16th. Um, at the same time, 1.30 or 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So we encourage you to take advantage of that program um, if you're available. And um, again, I want to wish you all a fine day. And remember, you're not alone. You can contact all of us. We're happy to be of help. Please take good care and have a good day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.